Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border-related issues. I'm Steve Murins, here remotely via Skype with Diana Okanachoff, and joining us is Andrew Hayes, uh, who has been on the podcast before, uh, episode 32, which was titled Keep Out the Poor, How Canada and the U.S. Address Immigrants on Welfare. And today we are going to be discussing the closure of the Canada-United States border, as well as a few other U.S. immigration topics, such as whether it's true that Trump has closed immigration to the United States for the duration of his first term, as well as the recent Supreme Court of uh, the recent United States Supreme Court uh, decision on. Uh, the DACA migrants, which Andrew can discuss in more detail. But why don't we start with the uh, closure of the Canada-U.S. border, which has been closed for several months now. Um, And I think they keep closing it in 30-day increments. And I think the next revisiting of the Canada-U.S. closure is supposed to be on um, July 21. But there are several differences in the way that the two countries have approached the closure of the border that I think are interesting and worth discussing. Um, So why don't we start first with the source of the closure document. So as far as I know, there isn't actually a written agreement between Canada and the U.S. regarding the closures. In Canada, the border closures are all done through an order in council that they post on their website. Andrew, where in the United, like, where is the U.S., if someone wants to look up what the rules are, is there a single source? Uh, is it a policy? What actually has closed the U.S. border to Canadians? Uh, if you want to find the actual language, you can look up uh, 85 Federal Register 22352 for the citation there. Uh, If you just dig around the uh, Federal Register, um, it's under Notification of Temporary Travel Restrictions Applicable to Land Ports, which will come up in a second, of Entry and Ferry Services between the United States and Canada. So there is actually a a written document, but my understanding, too, was it was essentially an agreement, and then both uh, parties to the agreement uh, more or less defined the essential language, uh, how they felt like defining it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the interesting, uh, interesting part here. So uh, I believe the agreement on both sides uh, really uh, comes down to what is essential and what is non-essential. Uh, and uh, the Department of Homeland Security has come out with a, with a joint statement uh, basically saying non-essential travel includes travel uh, that is considered tourism or recreational in nature. So the United States actually takes a very permissive view of what is essential and what is not essential. Basically, what they said is it is not tourism. So tourists uh, are covered by this travel ban, uh, but essentially nobody else is. Now, tourists, of course, is a, is a, is a wide concept in itself. Uh, tourism in, in non-immigrant uh, you know, parlance, not, non-immigrant being not permanent residents traveling to the United States, would be the B2 category. Uh, and so certainly a person going to Las Vegas to have a vacation clearly tourism. Uh, but what happens if uh, a person's visiting a sick family member? Well, that would normally be under B2. Is it recreational in nature? Well, that's up for the, the border, custom border protection, uh, to decide. 
Uh, so I would say my overall view of this is uh, it is very permissive uh, in nature, especially as compared to Canada. Of course, you guys will talk about the, the yeah. specifics there. Um, yeah. And one of the other interesting aspects is that if you if you take a look at the Federal Register and just for what is the Federal Register? The Federal Register is uh, is a um, source of information uh, available to the public on rulemaking, on laws, on a number of other elements. Uh, basically, it's the notice component um, of the federal government. So when rules or laws are, are, are put out there, uh, the Federal Register will record that so that the public can uh, you know, have the notice requirement, essentially. Okay. Um, so, so let's... Let's back up just a sec, because I think you started with something that was really interesting to me, because you said um, the closure of the land border. So is the United, can Canadians fly to the United States? Uh, yes. So the, the Federal Register, uh, as, as I read it out there, it, it applies to land ports. So um, it has been described in the media as a loophole. I don't really know if it's a loophole necessarily, but it, it is true that this uh, uh, agreement applies to the land, the land crossing. So theoretically, that does not apply then to the pre-clearance uh, locations. Pre-clearance is a, a program between the United States and Canada that operates out of airports. Uh, here locally, that, of course, would be the Vancouver Airport, YVR, but uh, also other airports uh, out east, uh, et cetera. So... Um, Yes, the the airports do not do not are not included in this uh, in this agreement. So, is there something else on the American side blocking air travel, or is that a huge? I don't want to say disconnect, but a difference in how the two countries have closed their borders. I uh, yes, I mean, it, so in the, in the question of what does uh, customs and border protection so. Uh, CBP, uh, I will use the word CBP for, for this discussion, uh, CBP has uh, an absolute uh, power over admission, uh, and that actually takes place at the airport. So you, and if you've been through the airports, you know that, right? You speak yeah. to the officers in blue um, before before you're granted admission uh, you know, or access to the air, airplane that will take you to the United States. But after that, there is no inspection. So uh, as far as they're concerned, yeah, this, this does not theoretically apply. I don't believe CBP has had an official statement on this matter, um, but... Uh, yeah, I've looked around as well to try to... And I don't know if you've seen anything, Deanna, about why is it that with the same agreement, Canada has closed land and air and the United States only land? Yeah, I've seen nothing. Uh, and, and so, yes, I, as I believe um, that the CBP has not officially made a statement regard, regarding this. Um, so, but it seems to be that uh, that airports, uh, the, the essential travel component does not apply at pre-clearance. Wow. And so maybe just to even backtrack to the rationale, like what does the, what is the sentiment about why the border is closed? So on the Canadian side, I think the media has overwhelmingly presented, the Canadian media has overwhelmingly presented this as uh, Donald Trump, President Trump, would love to, or is kind of indifferent maybe, as to whether the border is open or shut, and it's really Trudeau and the provinces who are very opposed to the border reopening. Um, I'm not as in-tuned with U.S. media, or if you're 
like, is that the impression that you get as well, that the U.S. would be perfectly fine to reopen the border and it's the Canadian side that is driving the border closure? Um, I don't know if it's discussed that uh, vigorously uh, in the United States, and it's only one of several travel bans. Uh, so there was a series of executive orders uh, uh, that are, are all published on whitehouse.gov. I yeah. would uh, encourage folks that, that are interested in this to always look at the actual executive orders and not rely on on sort of quick media summaries, because I find yeah. that there, there, there's a dis, disjoint there. So uh, the, the countries or areas that have been covered by travel bans uh, through the executive orders are uh, the People's Republic of China, with the exception of the SAR uh, in Hong Kong and Macau, uh, Iran, the Schengen area, which includes uh, most of the European countries, the United Kingdom, uh, and the Republic of Ireland. And then they recently added Brazil. So beyond that, those the border isn't closed. So to say that yeah. the U.S. border is closed-closed is just simply inaccurate. Uh, there are selective closures. Uh, and then within those closures, there are a series of ex exceptions and exemptions, etc. cetera. Uh, a person that has been in any of those areas for 14 days is subject to it. But if you simply left, let's say, um, Germany, and you went to, uh, I don't know, uh, Russia, <laughs> and hung out yeah. there for 14 days, theoretically, you would not be covered by the, the, the travel bans. Wow. Yeah. And in terms of uh, people that are able to travel, are there other quarantine type roles that come come to play? Absolutely. So that's uh, a great uh, a great point. Is that what we're talking about is simply the, the federal government's uh, uh, usage of power through the CBP and not individual state or loca localities like municipalities. So. Certain states, I believe Hawaii actually has a stay-at-home order for people that fly into. You, you have to have a 14-day quarantine plan, very similar to, to Canada. But, yeah, it's it's really up to the localities, the states, the cities, etc. Does that so quarantine apply it, to Americans going to Hawaii or international people? I, I, unfortunately, I don't know too much about the, the Hawaii okay, one, but yeah. uh, I, I believe it's everybody. Um, but yeah. it, you'd have to look at the, you know, the local rules. And they are a lot of them are quite different, so one has to be aware of that. So some of them will be state, uh, state mandated policies, and some of them will actually be municipal or like city ordinances or whatever that would be called, in 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 those jurisdictions. Yes. Wow. Canada. It's quite patchwork. Is a yeah. Yeah. In Canada, it's a federal. Everybody entering, with very narrow exceptions, has to self isolate for two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and so all Americans who do get through uh, have to self-isolate. We have a lot of employer clients who ask, do we have to pay them during this time that they're self-isolating? And mm. uh, the answer is yes. But there is no federal quarantine self-isolation mandate in the United States. So uh, there's, there, there's not. And I think it comes down to the, the fact that the states exercise the police power uh, and that's we, we saw that certainly with the, with the larger shutdowns and the sort of friction between the federal government and, and the governors. Uh, you know, whereas you know, the, the president of the United States can't order the governor of New York to do what what president wants when it was regarding uh, you know the police power. Um, so I know that that's maybe one thing that's slightly different between the United States and Canada. Yeah. Well, I mean, the politics of it has been like I feel like 
here in Canada, it's been the provincial government screaming at the federal government to do more. And I mean, in the United States, it seems half the states want to go one way, half the other, whereas it's been pretty consistent from the provinces here to instruct the feds to do more. Um, early on, I thought I couldn't recall another incident or time where you had the provinces sending their own officers to the Canada-U.S. border and to airports because they thought that CBSA wasn't being strict enough, um, which I don't know if that would happen in the U.S. or how that would work. Wow. Um, the only thing I can think of was the was it SB 1070. That was the that was the the, the, the law that was uh, passed in, I believe, Arizona uh, that granted uh, you know, Arizona law enforcement certain authority when it came to immigration, and that quickly went to uh, you know went to the judicial system to say no, states can't make immigration laws. So yeah. uh, federal government really is very very jealous, uh, guards its uh, authority. And immigration uh, in the United States, and I think here um, the the provinces were pressuring the feds to to go as far as the federal jurisdiction enabled them to. Some of the provinces went beyond that when it came to kind of property and civil rights, which falls within the provincial jurisdiction, to ensure greater quarantines or to uh, to monitor travel even within the country to their province and that sort of thing. So it wasn't technically an immigration matter, but more just a health and safety kind of a provision. But it's a very interesting, even there it felt like quite a patchwork, but to see it even going down to the level of, of the cities is quite fascinating, yeah. actually. Well, New, With Brunswick, very, what did, uh, New yeah. Brunswick banned foreign workers briefly. Quebec closed the border with Ontario. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was that I just really, and I remember BC sending, announcing that they were going to be sending officers to the airport to ensure that the province was satisfied that people were being admitted only if they had a uh, quarantine plan or mm-hmm. self-isolation plan. So going back to the specifics of the Canada-U.S. border closure, and it's a bit weird to, or I guess, like, for the U.S., the land border closure, and for Canada, the Canada-U.S. border closure. Um, so you talked about, I think both have described the, uh, is it the same wording in the United States? So in Canada, it's a foreign national is prohibited from entering Canada from the United States if they seek to enter for an optional or discretionary purpose such as tourism, recreation, or entertainment. Is that basically the same wording that the U.S. uses? Uh, it's similar. Uh, let's see if I can get the actual... Uh, I have determined that land ports uh, of entry along the U.S.-Canada border will continue to suspend normal operations and will only allow processing for entry into the United States for travels, travelers engaged in essential travel as defined below given the definition, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then it's defined as non-essential travel includes travel that is considered tourism or recreational nature. So similar. It's very it's similar. interesting because it seems like in some ways the Canadian side, they're adopting more of the U.S. interpretation than what's actually... Uh, I'm saying it in a confusing way, but what we're seeing a lot on the Canadian side is that they're not actually following our rules to the letter of the law. They are adopting more of a essential services kind of an approach, even though that's not actually what's written into our orders in council. Um, so it's kind of interesting that maybe that wording to some extent comes from the American side of the provision as opposed to the Canadian side. What are some of the, um, like the United, the Canadian 
order in council has never defined what a essential or non-discretionary purpose is, and I think that's created a lot of confusion. The U.S., it sounds like there is a list of what they consider essential. Well, uh, yes. So they did create a, a, a list, um, which includes, but is not limited to, U.S. citizens and green card holders, individuals traveling for medical purposes, uh, people attending school, and it goes on from there. So that's an interesting um, one. People attending school is allowed. What about work? Uh, work is included. Individuals traveling to work in the United States is on the list. So what, when they say not tourism, that's really what, what they mean. Um, that being said, I should always emphasize this. Customs and Border Protection have, have absolute discretion over, over admission. They can simply say, yeah, maybe it's essential, maybe it's not. Too bad you're not going in today because you failed, your burden, you failed to carry your burden of proof. Um, right. and, it's, and it's a, it's a subject I love to talk about because I, I find it really interesting, this reversal of, reversal of, the, of the burden. Uh, yeah. mm. Of course, the applicant must establish their admissibility to the satisfaction of CBP. Um, I would argue that subjective standards shouldn't really exist in the law, but probably do here. Uh, so CBP yeah. never needs a reason to say no. Um, For sure. And, but so, see that I've always thought, I've always, I think if I had to guess, so Canada had, and this is maybe a bit beyond this, like this will take quite a while to explain. So the low and short is that I always got the sense that Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, which is the processing department, you can call it, always intended that work and study be counted as non-discretionary and non-optional. And then CBSA, which actually runs the border, took a much more narrow approach because even now um, you can't come from, it was only starting, I'd say late June that they started to allow work permit applications and people to come from Canada, from the U.S. to Canada to work. Uh, I like, and that was a deliberate, that was a very explicit shift on the IRCC website. Um, and it's still close to, uh, well, it's becoming increasingly port of entry specific, but open work permit applicants, um, companies had to show that they were still in business. Companies had to show why the person couldn't work remote. Um, like it had to be, your work has to be essential. Right. And there was this Whether catch or not 22 that's that people in. fell in. Because yeah. it was, um, so... Are you able to self-isolate? Yet yeah, I can stay in a hotel for two weeks. Well, if you're able to work from your hotel, you can work anywhere. Why is your entry to Canada to work? Uh, like it sounds optional because you can work from anywhere. And that has shifted to what I think is more in line with the U.S. definition. Mm hmm. Yeah, but still by no means uh, what I call it permissive, um, the Canadian approach. And so I'm I'm interested to hear that 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 you would describe the the U.S. approach as generally speaking um, on the permissive side, because I don't I don't know, Steve, maybe I haven't been doing enough of these more recently, but I don't think that we're yet at a point where we would call the Canadian approach anywhere near permissive. Um, I think it's still. Um, in my limited experience, I mean, I'm mostly, 
observing these applications. I'm not really a work permit person, but what I'm seeing is mostly that it's no until you can convince them that it should be a yes, uh, and that those conversations can often be quite fraught. Um, so uh, I don't know if you feel that it's different than that, Steve. Um, I'd be interested because you do much more of this than I do. Um, I'd say it's, uh, well, so on June 19, IRCC published uh, an update on their website, which explicitly said that closed work permit applications were allowed um, at the Canada-US border. And the, we just go to the CBSA website. But it's but definitely even been since then. Even since then, our office saw refusals of applications that only after two or three different communications with CBSA were the people actually admitted. So uh, it's, let me see when CBSA updated their website. Because um, I saw that that was the other, so non-Canadians on July 3rd, the CBSA website, and this again gets into, I don't know if it's the same in the US, there's two departments that take very interpret different interpretations. So if you are a temporary worker arriving from the United States, you must prove that you meet one of the following. You live in Canada and have a valid work permit, or you are coming to Canada for the first time to begin employment and IRCC has approved your application and you can prove that the company is still operating or you're eligible to apply for a work permit and have proof of employment at a Canadian company. So since that has gone up on the CBSA website, it's become a bit more uh, flexible. So that's within the last three days. That there may have been a very a previous iteration of it. Like June mm -hmm. 19, I remember as being a day where I went, oh my God. Because the other thing that it used to be was they didn't allow spouses yes. and uh, children in. And now there's specific stuff on the IRCC website for that. Mm -hmm. um, I still find it really weird that you could just fly to the United States and like that it's just the land border. Yeah, I know it's uh, it is it is strange. And uh, I, when I said permissive, I would I was I would say that it's permissive as compared to Canada's interpretation. I see. Uh, okay. You know, in in comparison, they they feel as if. Uh, I mean, I, I do I do live here in uh, in Canada, so I, they do feel based on the same language, but kind of different uh, interpretations of that. Mm -hmm. Which also, I you know, there's an added irony is that uh, the president really is uh, is been trying to project toughness in the you know in the area of, of immigration, right? I mean, that's that's part of his platform from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um. Although I get the sense that he's also really trying to show that they've got COVID under control. Maybe that again is just media um, overhype. And so students are allowed in. I think students are not encompassed by, well, there's, a, there's an eight page memo that CBSA has listing different scenarios. Um, and I know that we've had students who've had to show that their schools are still open to in-person activities before they'll be allowed in. Um, before we move on, do you guys want to take a guess at how long the border will be closed for? Are they reopening it July 21? <laughs> it seems unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I second that. Yeah, I think so also. And I think if you had to guess, because then there's the added component of even if it reopens, 
how many tourists are going to come up if they have to self-isolate for two weeks. Uh, and I think I saw that two Americans were charged this morning for violating the self-isolation rules. I can't remember which province it was in. Hmm. Is it criminally um, charged? They are charged under the Quarantine Act. So I don't think it's under the criminal code, but it's under a federal act. And one of the immigration consequences is if you are so much as I think issued a ticket under that act, you can be banned from Canada for up to a year. Well, up to a year. You can be banned from Canada under an exclusion order for a year. So it's uh, it's strict. Um, I, I, I feel like I should add one more thing to what I said about the border. Uh, one aspect that affects Canadians uh, about the non, you know, basically standard operations are not the same is the biometrics portion of waiver filings. So Canadians have a special process uh, due to the fact they are largely visa exempt in the United States when it comes to filing a waiver of inadmissibility. These are your standard, uh, you know, a person is uh, inadmissible because of a crime or perhaps immigration violation, etc. Uh, part of that process uh, involves a biometrics appointment at the border where they look at uh, fingerprints, take photos, etc. Uh, and that is not uh, currently processing. So waiver applications for Canadians are, are frozen, I guess you could say. They're not going forward. Uh, you can still file them, but you just can't complete the, the mandatory process. Well, I just I wanted to ask one other question too about the about the land border provisions. Is that it's not just related to Canadians. It's a, it's it's related to crossings, right? So a, it's a non-Canadian crossing the land border from Canada is subject to the same rules as a Canadian doing that same thing. Am I right? That that would be correct. Okay. Uh, and Mexico also has an agreement with the United States as well. I I uh, I'm not as familiar with that, but it's uh, substantially similar. Uh, the big difference between Canadians and everybody else is the visa exempt uh, status. So um, one of my themes today, especially as we go to the other areas, will be, wow, Canadians get a much better deal than everybody else does. Yeah. Well, let's uh, pivot over to the other areas. Kusma, formerly known as NAFTA. Mm. Um, and actually, Andrew, I'm curious, as a U.S. immigration lawyer who lives in Canada, do you call it Usmaka or Kusma? <laughs> oh, no, we call it USMCA. Oh, uh, you're Usmaka. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and uh, up here it's Kusma. Uh, to me, and it's still I, NAFTA and probably will always be NAFTA, but uh, yeah, I had to be update, a traditionalist. I had to update forms. We got, uh, we had a client get, yeah, get told that the reference to NAFTA needed to be changed to Kusma. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> like, Someone going updating applications for the name change, even though the text is the same. Oh, my God. Um, but as far as Canadians go, one of the uh, things that I've been under the impression, and some of my friends who have wanted to go to the U.S. have been under the impression, is that Trump has closed the Canada-U.S. border to all work permit applications um, for the duration of his first term through some executive order. Is that the case? No. People are still doing L applications, still doing uh, TN applications uh, at at the ports of entry. So that's just that's just not accurate. As I say that with the caveat that at any point CBP can say, you know, no. I mean that this that's a separate question as to whether it is possible to request an adjudication. Uh, right. And so the the one that really uh, so TNs, which uh, are the out the professional. Uh, 
categories is an outgrowth specifically of Chapter 16 of uh, NAFTA, KUSMA, USMCA, all the same yeah. thing, because it's essentially the, I believe the text is, is identical um, in that particular area. So Tian, there was no uh, order affecting uh, Tian, so that just never has happened. Uh, but there was a recent uh, proclamation, uh, uh, I forget the number here, um, but it is, uh, it, was, it was put out on June 22nd, 2020, that affects uh, three categories that are very important for non-immigrants. Uh, non-immigrants is the U.S. immigration term for not not permanent residents. So work permit would be the, I guess, the Canadian maybe way you would we say that. We call it that. temporary residents. Yeah, temporary Tem residents. Temporary mm -hmm. resident. Okay. So these are the H-1B, uh, the H-2B, uh, the L workers, and the J-1s. So uh, this did this was a very wide-ranging uh, uh, proclamation. Uh, however, uh, the, there is an official statement um, from CBP that this does not apply to Canadians because Canadians are visa exempt. Could that be reinterpreted in the future? Of course. But as it is right now, Canadians are just not affected by this. So this is this is the wow. It's a good idea. <laughs> okay. Because this very sweeping uh, uh, declaration does or proclamation does not apply uh, because of the, the special visa exempt status that Canadians enjoy. Okay. What is the current, like, atmosphere in the U.S. with regards to immigration, setting aside the DACA uh, issue for a second? Sorry, what, what, you're going to have to ask me a, a, a finer pointed question. What you... um, so are, are, well, some general COVID questions. Like, one thing that's happened in Canada is that uh, there's been a pause on most deportations and CBSA has pretty much stopped inland enforcement. Gotcha. What has happened in the United States? I, I can speak generally on this. It's not really my forte, but I, uh, one of the biggest issues is simply the closures of the, of the courts, of the immigration courts, uh, uh, the Executive Office of Immigration Review. So uh, there, are, there are still things, are, the wheels are turning, but much slower. And part of it was just because they couldn't go to court. Uh, they being lawyers and and uh, you know the, the judge and the and, the, and homeland security. So uh, things are still happening, but uh, we're quite slow for, for quite some time. Um, okay. The internal agency that adjudicates benefits, which is known as the USCIS, United States Citizenship and Immigration Service, is continuing to operate. Uh, however, many of their employees are working from home as well. Uh, these are big facilities with lots of people, so they had to sort out the essentially the yeah. safety the safety for that that's uh, a big bureaucracy though that's not a tribunal that's the those yes. are the individual decision makers okay that's correct yeah that would be the yeah the, the, inter the internal immigration agency that's they're not enforcement they're not they're adjudicatory right. like ircc of officers is the canadian equivalent it's not right okay and who was i'd read somewhere that there was a 12,000 people were at risk of being furloughed because of uh, some order it's not an order. It's uh, a lack of funds. So the, the USCIS is largely funded by filing fees. Uh, the, oh. the, the filings are down for a number of reasons. One is high unemployment. I mean, all of the normal pandemic reasons, but also because they suspended a premium processing. And maybe that's what you're referring to. Uh, a petitioner, someone that's sponsoring someone else, could pay $1,440 for uh, expedited processing. And this is a big money maker for the, the agency, which, as I said, is largely uh, uh, finally pre-funded. 
So those drop-offs really put the, put the squeeze on, on USCIS. Uh, there's also been a, uh, a bigger focus at USCIS on vetting as opposed to adjudic- uh, you know, benefits. Um, and so there's been more processing. With less fees, they've run out of money. So they need $1.3 billion by uh, August, I think, where 75% of the workforce is going to be furloughed. Wow. wow. So that, that's not going to speed things up. On a side note, uh, who sets what application fees are in the U.S.? Is it by regulation or the department just gets to decide? Or It is by regulation. Uh, there was, uh, so there has to be notice and comment. In fact, there was some of that uh, in December of, of this year. But yes, it's, it's, it's regulation after notice right. and comment. Canada just amended its regulation so that uh, by 2022, all fees will increase at the rate of inflation. So, uh, I don't know, that'll address some of the cost and make a big rush to get applications out before the next every year's fee increase goes up. I, I would say that the U.S. fees have to go up. It, it, it's, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense if the agency can't cover itself. Um, uh, that those fees will go up, and they, you know, they they, they do go up o- over time. Um, I just wanted to say about the the, the executive order covering H, H's and L's. So, you know, for Canadians, the answer is simple: they're not they're not subject to it. Uh, but one of the other aspects that's very interesting about all these executive orders uh, goes back to uh, what was uh, originally sort of termed as the the Muslim ban. I don't particularly like to use that term. Um, it was it was the travel ban that was early in, the, in Trump's uh, administration that was focused on on largely uh, Muslim countries, uh, but not entirely. Uh, so this was litigated all the way up to uh, the Supreme Court after, I believe, three different iterations of the travel ban. Um, and it was decided that the president did have the authority to do this in the Hawaii case. And so if you look at any of these executive orders, you always see a reference to uh, INA, which is the Immigration and Nationality Act 212F which is a large grant of authority by Congress to the president to control entry. So the key word is entry. And this is uh, one of my objections to the larger conversation in the media, is that the president doesn't get to unilaterally rewrite immigration law. That would be a violation of separation of powers. But Congress has given the president authority over entry. And Hawaii has affirmed, yeah, he doesn't really need to explain very much, or he or she doesn't need to explain very much, you know, why they're exercising this authority. And so this is really apparent for the H-1Bs because H-1Bs are often the visa or status that are used by students after they've graduated school and have gotten uh, a job. There's a program Mm -hmm. called OPT, uh, which allows work authorization for students uh, between one year and three years, depending on whether they're involved in uh, STEM fields, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Uh, basically to bridge these students into the workforce. H-1B is often, but not always, the status that they get, uh, you know, when they're finally, you know, in, into the workforce there. Okay. So uh, when this is, when the president suspended entry for H-1Bs, that does not cover all of the students that are in the United States already. So uh, it's really not apocalyptic. Yes, there are certain people that will be frustrated by, by this order. But the vast majority of H-1Bs, and I did try to look up the number. I, I unfortunately can't keep it statistic. <laughs> um, but I would, my gut tells me that it's probably the majority of H-1Bs are uh, changing status from students over to H-1B. None of those people are affected by this order whatsoever because it deals with entry. 
Right. So there's no new, no new. Um, oh, but again, that wouldn't. Would that ever be an entry type of an application in H1B? The standard, what usually happens for, for the students is they, once they get their H1, they at some point go back to their uh, native country. Usually they visit family uh, or, or, or what have you. Then they get their visa at that point and then re-enter. The right. visa is, is an invitation. It's the, it's the document that visa subject people are required to present at the border to be given entry by CBP. So right. it's a prerequisite document um, that is required for entry. But if you never leave, you don't need it. And the president can't regulate, uh, you know, can't regulate, um, or I should say, can't alter the immigration law. He can only control entry because the law has given him power over entry. So, but it would substantially, it would substantially limit their mobility. Yes. However, it would. Yeah. So and that's so where we got a lot of calls from people who were in the United States that had that mobility and it was the impact on their mobility rights that caused them to want to consider leaving the United States for fear that like if they had a sick family member they wouldn't be able to leave without um, risking their their status in future that sort of thing I, I would absolutely agree with that if, if a person departed if a person departed the United States now and has does not have a valid h1b at the time this proclamation came out you're not going back uh, right. anymore. Very unlikely. You would have to use uh, uh, some of the exceptions. I see. Emergency appointment at a U.S. consulate. So the other thing that's quite interesting is that the U.S. consulates uh, are closed to in-person appointments. So one can't get a visa anyway right now unless you need a very narrow definition of an emergency. And they are very narrow. Okay. And are those starting to open up yet? Or you're not seeing any indication that those are moving just yet? No. uh, not at all. We, we would love to see. Everyone is waiting to, to know when consulates are, are going to start. Uh, uh, yeah. Ours Understood. just started on July 1. Yeah. Uh, but even there, they say they're going to process everything and approve them, but you can't, for visitors anyways, can't come to Canada yet. Um, and even there, I think it's with reduced staff levels. Uh, mm. And so talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, let's switch to the final topic, which is DACA. Uh, oh, is, is it okay if I just say one quick word about oh, yeah. one of the other proclamations just Please. for the sake of, of, of completeness? Uh, there was another proclamation issued on April 22nd that, that uh, controlled entry for immigrants. So what we were just talking about was the, was the temporary folks, but there was another proclamation that dealt right. with, uh, with immigrants. Uh, this is similar to the other one. It comes down to entry, uh, right. and it uh, does affect a number of the employment-based categories. Uh, there are certain exemptions to that, uh, including the uh, Immigrant Investor Program, known as the EB-5, uh, Employment Creation Program, but it does catch an awful lot of uh, other areas, including some of the areas that are, are in which a labor market test is required. Uh, in the United States, that's known as labor certification. Uh, and so... Uh, that that will affect a number of people, but once again, it has to do with entry. So if a person is already in the United States or enters the United States and utilizes internal process, that proclamation has no effect, um, right. theoretically. Uh, I say theoretically because a person must properly represent their intent at the border. They can't come in with, uh, you know, with, with, you know, misrepresent their intent. So um, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, these proclamations do certainly sound very uh, widespread and will affect certain people, but 
because of the nature of the actual way the immigration system works, it's not as wide as, as, it, as it seems. I think before we move on to DACA, I just have two quick questions. Well, they might not be quick, but uh, you talked about TNs. You talked about the Hs. Um, did we skip over the Ls? Uh, we, we did a little bit there. Uh, Ls are, are intra-company transfers right. uh, of either managers, executives, or people uh, with specialized knowledge. Right. And so that one is also close to incoming. So you could do an extension, for example, perhaps, but you wouldn't be able to apply uh, from from outside of the country as an intercompany transferee at this stage. Unless you're Canadian and which you, the Canadians right. rights, uh, which are derived from the trade agreements, uh, you can still uh, go to an airport or land crossing, I think. Um, and ask for CBP to adjudicate, uh, you know, your L case. Uh, so Canadians really do get it. They've always had this, this special ability to have the law enforcement function, right, CBP, adjudicate these cases. It's, it's somewhat remarkable. Right. Uh, there's been a, a number of different uh, programs. There's a pilot program out here uh, that, that, that sought to maybe take away some of that burden on CBP. <laughs> uh, right. But it's 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 trade trade agreement uh, based, um, right? So so Canadians are unaffected. Got it. But that's a, a pretty sizable program, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? The L program within the United States, even to non-Canadians. It is, and uh, I, you know, I, I think that some of the the justifications that were put forth in the proclamations are are really they don't make a lot of sense. Uh, mm. You know, multinational ex executives coming in, you know, periodically. Are those, are those individuals really uh, taking jobs that you know from Americans? Uh, right. are, are the are the companies that went through labor certification where they've established there's no willing, available, and able U.S. workers to do those jobs? Are they are they stealing jobs? It, it seems a little specious to me that yeah. some of these categories are treated as if they're they're directly competing with the U.S. labor market when in fact many of these positions are, are specialized as specialized knowledge, um, you know, sort of illustrates. Uh, that are necessary for U.S. companies to do specific things, and by doing those, it creates, uh, you know, creates jobs. But right. Exactly. The, when do these expire? And are these are these proclamations related to preventing the spread of COVID, the economy? Uh, uh, yes. Like um, what's the rationale for them? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I like that little chuckle, but <laughs> it, it, it's both. It's both. Uh, the, the two that I just discussed, the, you know, the one dealing with the non-immigrants and the other one, uh, they are specifically about the, the labor market, protecting the labor market. It does mention COVID, um, but uh, yes. So, And they expire? Uh, the non-immigrant one expires December 30th, I believe, and the immigrant one is extended every 60 days. So uh, all of them are, are, are just kind of re-upped uh, over time. So the immigrant one that that affects green card, like the people who are seeking green cards who are already in the United States, that's also no, that's something different. So that was my final question. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and, and one, one, you know, one spends enough time in immigration, you get familiar with all of the sort of uh, very specific terms of art. But uh, yeah. Yeah, I saw in the media this discussion of uh, it's preventing green cards from abroad. And I thought to myself, there's no such thing. You know, green right. cards are issued abroad. It's an immigrant okay. visa. That's a, that's a Canadian phenomenon. Yeah. And, and it really matters because uh, USCIS is the agency that would uh, issue a green card. It would affect a person that's abroad getting an immigrant visa, of course. 
but that's fundamentally different than saying green cards are are effective. So I see, I understand. But but to answer the question, like green cards are still being processed. Um, okay. Very slowly okay. though. So I, I guess to, to I, I started off by saying, hey, you know, this seems a lot bigger than it is. But really, what we're seeing on on the practitioner side is where where, where folks are being affected is things are slow, like really slow like multiply sure slow yeah okay got it okay that's, that's super helpful yeah exactly well i mean permanent residence is still chugging along except for there are certain barriers stupid barriers like if you can't do biometrics you can't be finalized even though everything else is done so it's like a bit mickey mouse in that sense but it's crazy all the rest of biometrics have only been a mandatory requirement in canada since january 2020 exactly and that requires now it's the holdout around yeah. everything to all Plus, I don't know, I think the family class is ground to a halt also. Um, yeah, I don't think I've had any family class decisions now that you mentioned it. a case-specific inquiry, which said they have not started processing applications since February 2020. Like new applications, if you applied since then, um, they have not yet been opened. I think it's a gap between the online applications and the paper applications. Yeah, definitely. But again, you can race to a decision that they can't do anything about because of that that technical default of not being de defect of not being able to biometric screen so yeah 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 it seems a bit silly okay so i'll stop standing in the way of the transition over to the daca decision <laughs> which i find very interesting as well so you go ahead with that Stephen. so let's start with well it's interesting because i've only read the media summaries of the decision and as with everything in the US the media summaries are either that so why don't we just like what is before we get into what the decision was DACA the deferred what is DACA it's deferred action for childhood arrivals yeah and so that was a program so it was an Obama exec you can correct okay I'll summarize what I know about this, and you can tell me what the media and I have gotten wrong, which is Obama, towards the end of his administration, created a program through executive order to issue work permits to children who are in the United States without status, and that may or may not have been constitutional. And the US Supreme Court in a split ruling ruled that it doesn't matter whether Obama's introduction of the program was constitutional, because even if it was not constitutional, Trump's reasons for getting rid of it weren't reasonable. And the reasons, so it doesn't, it, yeah, is that basically... I would say that that's that that's fairly accurate. Yeah, that's that's basically what what's what's happened here. Um, so yeah, DACA was a 2012 program, uh, and it was okay. initiated. Yeah, it was so it was it was early. It was I guess mid you know mid uh, Obama administration, um, and it was uh, issued through memorandum uh, memoranda I suppose. Uh, and the requirements were that the uh, is a memorandum the same as an executive order. Uh, related it was through the actual D uh, department of homeland security so the memorandum would have been issued by the dhs um as opposed to 
the, the executive order or proclamation, which is issued directly by the president. Okay. So mm-hmm. it was a form of rulemaking uh, uh, at the administrative level. Uh, and I believe it did actually have, uh, I should have grabbed the CFR components here, uh, CFR being the Code of Federal Regulations. Um, so there, was, there, there had to have been some rulemaking uh, uh, from that um, for, for the agency to know how, to, how it was going to affect this. But you're right, it was essentially a, a prosecutorial uh, uh, discretion concept, but it had two components. And this actually was highlighted in the, in the, uh, the Regents of California case, which is the Supreme Court case that, that recently came out. It's forbearance. And it's a benefit. So the forbearance uh, is that, you know, should you be accepted in the program, you, you know, you will not be removed from the country being there without documentation. Uh, so obviously a person that was not properly admitted uh, and does not have a status is removable under the Immigration Act. So there was the forbearance component, which was the prosecutorial discretion, and then the highly controversial element, which was the work authorization document. So the document that you got was known as an EAD, Employment Authorization Document. Allowed you to get a social security number, uh, you know, Medicare, social security, get a job, all of those sorts of things. So one of the highly contentious areas of, of DACA was, hey, is this actually lawmaking? Is this not really prosecutorial discretion? Is this the, the president making a law, creating an affirmative benefit for somebody outside of the you know, bicameral presentment requirements? So uh, uh, yeah, so the, the basic requirements were that. Uh, the person had to have unlawful presence from entering the country before their 16th birthday. They had to live in the United States continuously since uh, June 15, 2007. Uh, they had to be under 31 in you know the same time in 2012. Uh, they had to have completed high school or a GED, and uh, they could not have been convicted of a felony or serious misdemeanors. So uh, the idea, uh, well, it really was derived from the fact that. Uh, that the Obama administration couldn't get the DREAM Act going through, so it created this sort of concept to try to look after this this, this cohort. And it's a big cohort. There's uh, 700,000 DACA recipients uh, wow. you know, in, in the United States. Um, so, of course, uh, with the election of, of the current president, uh, this program was, uh, was rescinded uh, 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 by the acting secretary, uh, Elaine Duke, so there was a second program too, not to get not to get too crazy here. There was a second program too called DAPA. So not only did you have, um, sorry, I'm just trying to wield my phone here. Uh, the second program uh, that was called DAPA that was to uh, address the parents uh, of of basically uh, of U.S. citizens that were in the country without status, and that would have affected 4.3 million. So you had these two programs. Uh, DAPA never really went anywhere. DACA did, as I said, it created a large uh, group that, that you know have the benefit. These are now people that are um, you know, working, that are you know as part of the society, right? Filing taxes enmeshed within the society. Hence, why this came up later in the Supreme Court decision. Um, there was a series of memos, uh, basically uh, series of memos, explanations, injunctions, uh, a large kind of back and forth in the courts until you finally got to the Regents' case. There was a couple of uh, different cases that all got brought together uh, here. And you were right. This is an admin law decision, not yeah. a substantive decision. In fact, I believe uh, uh, Clarence Thomas basically said, why have we not addressed the really interesting uh, underlying aspect here? It's like, was this, was this permissible uh, lawmaking or, or not? Um, we know that where, where he would probably come down on that. 
Uh, so it was a, it, one could call it an admin law sidestep. Um, but it basically said that the, the rationale put forth by the original uh, rescinding memo by, by uh, Lane Duke and the one that after that by Christian Nielsen uh, did not fully explain the effect on the group of the, uh, of, of the DACA folks. So I'll just read out loud the uh, actual holding of the court. This is the very end. We do not decide whether DACA or its rescission are sound policies. The wisdom of those decisions is none of our concern. We address only whether the agency complied with the procedural requirement that it provide a reasoned explanation for its action. Here, the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to obtain forbearance and what, if anything, to do with the hardship to DACA recipients. So they said, yeah, maybe you created a benefit, but trust prosecutorial uh, discretion is still a thing, and your explanations of this were arbitrary and capricious because they didn't deal well enough with the forbearance component. So, out. That was So that's basically what, what, what happened there. There's nothing to address the fundamental questions uh, here, and will undoubtedly, you know, more things will happen going uh, mm. forward. Like, I, I mean, I think it's important to note the reason why the DACA was put into place in the first instance, um, which as I understand it was because there was this massive population of children who was in the United States that was considered by the Obama administration to be there kind of through no fault of their own. And here they were brought to Canada, uh, sorry, by to the United States um, illegally by their parents, but that the decision was to not penalize them for the sins of their fathers or mothers, you know, and so, um, so, what I understand from the Supreme Court's decision was, it, it seemed almost like uh, kind of, um, you know, I, I'm sounding like a, this is sort of the layperson criticism of all really highly legal decisions, but it sort of seems like a bit of a technicality that they use to strike down this thing by saying, um, one of the, the arguments that they used was to say that they were using the arguments, sorry, that the, that the, that the policy that tried to rescind it was using one flaw to kill the entire policy as a whole. And that that was kind of a, an, an error. It was a deficient document that was trying to strike it down. Am I getting that right? That this was basically the technical incompetence of this document? Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically that the, that the, uh, that the Duke failed to supply the requisite reasoned analysis. Um, right. So it was the re it was, there was a, failure of reasoning and the considering of the effect. Uh, there was a reliance component as well. Uh, this group is now relying on this. They deserve, in a large group, is relying on this this policy. Uh, so the requirement from the agency perspective is to truly analyze and think about you know what, what the effects are here. And that was right. the efficiency. Um, and so uh, in, in, in the United States, the uh, Administrative Procedures Act, the APA, governs administrative decisions, um, rulemaking, of course, but also uh, you know, whether decisions uh, meet certain thresholds. And arbitrary capricious is actually a grounds um, under which policies can be, or regulations can be, uh, can be struck down. Right. And so it's just, I mean, from a comparative law perspective, this is just a really fascinating point for me because the idea of one branch of the government having to really rationalize and justify in a 
judicially said ju- judicially sound manner before they can rescind another policy. I think there's not really a, a similar thing that we can point to in Canadian law where that type of a defense of a policy decision needs to be put forward by the executive branch of government. Like, am I understanding the way that those mechanics work? Absolutely. And, and I've wondered about this myself. And I, I think that it's because of the, uh, well, you have the three branches of government in the United, uh, the United States, legislative, executive, and judicial, and they are very distinct. Uh, three articles, right. The first three articles of the Constitution sets out the three branches. Whereas in the parliamentary system, and I, I won't go too far here and make, make myself sound uh, too foolish, uh, but you have an emerging of legislative and executive with the, in the form of the prime minister. Yes, there are different areas there, but they are much closer uh, uh, in, in, in function than in the United States. And so when it comes to admin law, there's a historical fight over lawmaking. So uh, mm. in, the, in really it was the FDR era in the, you know, you know, when they were sort of trying to figure out responses to the Great Depression. Uh, this was the era in which massive agencies were created. And this is a, went into a long you know, fight at the Supreme Court saying, our agency making laws. Uh, and you know, numerous things happened. Uh, basically, Roosevelt threatened the Supreme Court and said, if you don't find that this is okay, I'm going to just start adding Supreme Court justices. Uh, <laughs> that the, mm. the uh, Supreme Court said, you know what, actually, this isn't lawmaking, this is rulemaking. And as long as it's really clear about the delegation of authority from Congress over to the executive, we'll allow it. And so the APA is kind of the ability for uh, well for Congress and the judicial branch to make sure that those delegations of lawmaking authority are are, are okay. Yeah, this is actually like this is pretty mind blowing stuff for me because I always would have said that we had great separation of powers and three very distinct arms of government, just the same as the United States. But to see the way that it's exercised in this decision is something very very far beyond the separation that we would that we would ever appreciate. I don't know, Steve, do you agree with me that this is like just kind of... Uh... I mean, I can't think of where... I, 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 There was the, the only policy that IRCC has that I remember being successfully challenged, but on constitutional grounds, is the niqab ban. But I can't, like, I'm trying to think in the Canadian context, suppose... But that's a charter challenge, right? That was that's a charter it challenge. was found yeah. to be unconstitutional. Yeah, um, because like, of the limits on freedoms. And yeah. so I see that. But the idea of them saying that this intention that you've made to rescind a government issued policy hasn't been done in a re in a, that this decision was capricious, that you haven't justified this decision, that it's not a matter of it not meeting up with, you know, the fifth amendment or whatever it might be that it's strictly that you haven't rationalized your own decision to me that i can't like i was trying to think okay we have the you know when they introduced the cumulative ban on work permit holders to four years that they then rescinded it's difficult to see like there was never any litigation around the rationale yeah yeah i mean uh, like there's a francophone work permit there's when trump rescinded it was it that it would invalidate all the work permits that existed as well or that they would were those did those even have an expiry date the DACA permits or? oh yeah yeah two years so uh, is it invalidating existing ones or just that they wouldn't be renewed or it was it was a mixture of those things uh, it was rather it was rather a flurry of activity so there was uh, there was they, they actually did renew ones that were current 
Uh, so they were going to end the program, but they actually renewed the ones that were current when they was first came out. Uh, but basically said, yeah, no new ones. But the, as the program was going to, to, to wind down, my belief is that the whole thing was going to be going to be struck. And I think yeah. that was one of the issues here is that, it, you know, they were essentially saying, uh, you know, this is fruit of the, po the poison tree. It's like this thing, this, this whole DACA program was based on illegality and therefore shouldn't, you know, shouldn't exist. Um, yeah. But then, of course, you have these supervening due process concepts that are uh, built at, you know, built into the APA. So I guess you could say procedural due, fair, uh, due process really is, comes out of the 14th Amendment, theoretically, but um, or, or, or possibly the Fifth Amendment. Um, and so I made that up. I was a, that was a good guess. <laughs> 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 okay. Yeah. Well, there was an equal protection challenge as well that was baked into this, but they did, the court didn't really want to go there. Um, yeah. In my understanding, it really wanted to focus more on the on the procedural Precious. side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they had it. I think they figured they had a button down there, so they didn't need to go any further than that. I mean, here this would be there's so much there's so much fear I feel in Canada of judicial activism that I think. Um, even though we do have this, um, what I'm starting to realize is kind of uh, perhaps in word only this this separation of powers. There is always this real fear of judicial activism and and a recognition that there are certain powers that exist and that you know if the legislator intended this, then they would have written this, you know. And so it's really it is about to some extent giving the full meaning of what the legislation was supposed to say and 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 tempering that what was clearly the executive intent um, through the judicial process is actually fairly encouraging to me, given the situation that we're facing in the United States right now, to be honest. It's the first piece of good news that I've heard of saying like, okay, well, you can do this, but it still has to withstand this kind of um, really substantive scrutiny that it needs to hold up to, um, to this kind of test of whether or not it's capricious. Yes, and I, I think that uh, certainly one, what... There's a lot of discussion about liberal judges and conservative judges. I, I think a lot of that can get bent around in, in the media sphere um, a little bit because uh, you know the judges will, will say, "Well, there's no such thing. We're just judges. We just mm. call balls and strikes." Now we all know that's not entirely true, but the the the, the, the quote conservative judges, yeah, yeah, conservative judges and justices uh, are very they're they're suspicious about wide delegations of vague authority. Um, so, and I, I think a lot of the admin law stuff is, is, is about that, really. It's about what, what, what did Congress actually delegate? What are the bounds of that? How much yeah. uh, 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 allowance should, uh, uh, you know, an agency had to interpret, you know, sorry, <laughs> uh, interpret um, uh, those, those grants of authority and did they do it properly? And I, I think that's all very good because it can be, a, I, I would say that it'd be a very scary place if, if, if the agencies effectively uh, supplant Congress in the lawmaking authority. Now, right. one could argue that's already the, the way things are, but uh, you know, I suppose there are always uh, uh, limits to that. And well, it's good to know that there are some levers, though. Like, I think in Canada, um, you know, I've been talking about this a lot in a, a many different contexts, especially around the pandemic, about this notion of good governance. And I think um, in many countries, there's a sort of a notion that the that the government is doing a pretty good job at trying to figure out how to navigate the, the country through these very difficult times. And uh, there tends to be a, a tendency to allow for these powers to be conferred on, on, 
on government decision makers. And I think in Canada, we went through this a, a few years ago, um, not under the Trudeau um, uh, period, but before that, um, under Harper, where there was a massive uh, recentering of power in the prime minister's office with the, the sort of enlarging of ministerial discretion and, you know, allowing for greater par powers that could be confer exercised without the normal parliamentary process. And I think for a lot of us, there was a real, lawyers in particular, I think there was a real nervousness about it, is that that kind of centering of too much, very, very broad power with very few limitations on it was not something good. And even if you're happy with it under your current administration, that in difficult circumstances with a different administration, not so good. So to see um, an example in the United States of where power that isn't being utilized in a way that the general public might see is a judicious way of using that power is going to be tempered is actually something quite comforting to me. It, it is. And I would say the, the, the funny thing about the whole DACA thing is that actually policy wise, it's, it's a lot of people think that it's a good idea, leaving aside the, what we've been talking about, but whether this is these children who did not have agency. I mean, if you're a, a two year old child and, and you're put into a trunk of a car, I mean, you, you can't, you don't understand international borders. Uh, right. you, you, you grow up, you go to school, you don't commit crimes, you're, you're ready to, to, to live your life, and you really don't have a connection to your, your country. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons why DACA, as a policy, makes a ton of sense. In fact, I believe Trump has even said that he supports legislation uh, in this area. Uh, the sad part about the United States, in my opinion, is the inability uh, for uh, the Congress to reach points of compromise, even where they seem fairly apparent. Hmm. Uh, and I don't, I, you know, I, I won't go on too much there, but really I believe that, you know, Congress is the, is the branch of the government that's closest to the people, and they're the ones that should be making making these rules and or these laws. And uh, uh, this would be a good area to start because a lot of people agree that these these kids are deserving of, some, of something uh, more than this limbo. Right. Now, what if the criticism of this decision that I've read where it actually makes it like so Trump on his way out or any president on their way out could issue a flurry of executive orders and then it makes it difficult for an incoming administration to simply undo them because they the once it's in it's in but to strike it down or undo it you need very detailed reasons to change the status quo yes I, I would say that if it was if it was too hurried it would be easy to get rid of um, there, there first of all a lot of uh, a lot of uh, executive orders are actually enjoined, uh, so that the courts are enjoining things left and right. Uh, so that slows slows down certain things. Um, but also, uh, you know, an executive order can just be overturned by another one easily. The difference between that and, and DACA is that DACA is around for a long time. I mean, it's 2012, 700,000 uh, you know aliens, right? Alien meaning non-U.S. citizen uh, have have availed themselves of this thing. So it was it was quite a substantive thing. So it's not the yeah. case now. There's not. It, does the court go out of it like make it clear that this is unique then? That uh, or no, it's not unique necessarily. But in in, in so that the standard of, of arbitrary uh, capricious review, uh, it, have to, it has to be based on consideration of the relevant factors. So it is relevant to say that this is a large group and that this program's been around a long time. It's relevant to relevant to reliance. Uh, and actual impact. And so the court basically said, yeah, you didn't really consider the full impact here. 
and you didn't really you didn't really separate the prosecutorial discretion concept, the um, forbearance part, from the benefit part, which is the EADs. It's EADs. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Andrew, but it sort of reads a little bit like the balancing test that they do under Section 1 of the Constitution here, where it's like, okay, you've infringed upon this right, but is it done in a way that's with the minimal impact on the affected population? Like, it has to be done with a certain, um, you know, within certain standards, with consideration for the affected population was how I read the decision, you know, and that when it doesn't fall within those constraints, that's when it will be deemed arbitrary and capricious. I, I would agree with that, yes. Exactly. Something that just came in that was like flung off the off the cart while the president was on the outgoing thing, it's not going to have the same affected population, it's not going to have the same impact to rescind it, um, and so the test for arbitrary and capriciousness, I would think, would be easier to meet as kind of... Yes, I, I, I would agree. It's, yeah. It's a it's a fact it's a circumstances you know totality of the circumstances sort of I don't think they actually use those words but it it's like that I mean it can't it has yeah. to analyze the whole the whole affected group and if there's not a big affected group well that's easy to to, to do right uh, well I did allude to one other interesting aspect um, I guess I'm, I'm, this is a sort of practitioner thing uh, and I actually don't do a lot of DACA work just because I'm here in Canada mm -hmm. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, our, our office does, and my uh, immensely talented colleague uh, d does that as well, uh, Gabrielle Schneck. Um, so one of the things that, that's interesting about this is that because the program is allowed to continue, and theoretically, um, DACA recipients can get what's called uh, an advanced parole document, they can leave the country and then come back. And why is this so important? Well, if they do that, they can, if they've married a U.S. citizen or something like that, it now opens up a path to permanent residence through family or, or something else, because you can adjust status, which is an, a movement of your, your status from a temporary person or whatever to a permanent person if you're a parolee. So uh, it creates an interesting uh, 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 practice area, I guess you could say, uh, for people doing that, an option for, for folks. Um, that being said, uh, probably not the best idea to be leaving the country right now. Mm, yeah. DACA, like, so my, like, in Canada, I would imagine most DACA, or most people who qualify under DACA would have been able to get permanent residence through what's called the Humanitarian and Compassionate Application for people who can't otherwise apply for a visa. There's no such similar sweeping program in the United States, right? Like, it's, like, just a visa on compassionate grounds, uh, immigration visa. Not, not really. I mean, there are a number of uh, a number of sort of special programs, um, but not. No, and I would say I would say not really. Uh, there are a lot of weird angles uh, that that are possible. I, mean, I say weird angles that uh, special programs for for select groups. Uh, so yeah, I, not really. Has there been like? Is there a push in the U.S. for? Because it always seems like it's an all or nothing, right? all the people who qualify under DACA need to stay or all the people who qualify need to go. Is there ever a push for a more individualized assessment? Uh, like there the is, and, and, and this is sort of my lament, is that there's a lot of agreement that uh, on various immigration aspects between, let's say, you know, left and right or the parties or you know, various strata 
Uh, but I think, as you're also saying, is that it seems it seems like everyone now has to win the whole battle and can't compromise, uh, which is unfortunate because it's just not realistic to say that between 14 and 20 million people, which is the estimated uh, undocumented population, that, that you can just round them up and send them send them away. I mean, that's just not possible. Yeah. Uh, there isn't a you, what are you going to build uh, tent cities, uh, um, jails, open open air jails? I mean, the logistical problems alone, leaving aside the substantial moral problems, uh, are, are tremendous. Uh, so uh, I think a lot of people um, certainly uh, we had the was the gang of eight, gang of seven. I can't remember. It was a, it was a uh, bipartisan group that had Marco Rubio there. Um, basically said, yeah, let's let's try to find a compromise to you know figure out what we're going to do here. It's unsustainable to have tens of millions of people without status in the United States. Yeah. We'll see if either President Biden or Trump do it in the next four years. I I, I will say I I, did, I, I hoped that uh, that Trump was going to use some of his famous deal making skills to try to try to tease out some of these agreements, but uh, doesn't look like that happened. Or President Kanye. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> I'm not even going to touch that one. Yeah. Anyway, I think uh, we're at above an hour. Yeah. Uh, I think we will wrap it for today. And, Deanna, I know you're on the island. Uh, but, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we're all working remote due to uh, COVID or in and out of the office. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, hopefully next time uh, we can do it in person as well. Yes, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yeah, always. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Thanks, guys, for, for having me on. And it's yes. always, always fun to hear about the Canadian perspectives and see what's similar <laughs> and see what's different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was very eye-opening. All right. Okay. Talk soon. All right, guys. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye-bye.